So how do you describe verbally what really cannot be described? Think about that for just a second. I was, I was looking this week um, just to prepare and just kind of thinking through um, some illustrations here. And if you Google the top ten most famous paintings in the world, you'll get different lists of those, okay? But there's some things in that top ten list of famous paintings that are going to be fairly consistent, okay? Um, you're going to find Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Have you ever seen that? It's a picture of a lady, okay? All right? Well, that's not a very good description of it, is it? But it's a picture of a lady. Or or his um, his... Picture of the Last Supper. Remember that one? Jesus and, and his guys sitting at a table having a meal. Um, I mean, that's, that's, it's a picture. That's what it is. Um, or what about Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel? Or his David there in Florence, Italy? I mean, you can describe the, the muscles. Literally, you can see the veins in the arms of Adam as God reaches out, their fingers almost touching or in David, you can see the intricacies of his, of his, of his body there. It's a statue of a guy. I mean, how, how do you describe that? How do you describe monks, the scream? It's a picture of a person screaming, right? Do you, you get where I'm going with this? There's some things that, that I've been privileged to be able to stand in front of and see. And, and it's ridiculous to try to describe it verbally. And it's really, in some ways, fruitless to even take a picture of it and then try to, because you just can't. I mean, the Grand Canyon is this steep-sided hole in the ground that the Colorado River has cut through the state of Arizona. It's 277 miles long. In some places, it's a mile deep. I've just described it. Is that, is that the Grand Canyon? Is, is that what it is? You see where I'm going with this? Some things are just impossible to describe what you've seen. We saw last week from the book of Revelation that there's some things that are impossible to see unless they're revealed, unless the curtain is pulled back and we're able to see it. And even then, it's difficult for us to comprehend the description that we see. And I think that's the case today. We sing about the glory of Christ. We sing about how beautiful he is, his radiance. We sing all about that. And yet, how do we describe that? Have you ever thought about what Jesus looked like? Okay. Now, to white Anglo-Saxons, he's usually a white Anglo-Saxon. To Asians, often he's depicted as Asian. Sometimes he's depicted a man of color. I mean, he was, he was, he was Arabic, okay? Or he was, he was Jewish. He was from the Middle East. He's, he's gonna look like that, whatever that might be. Now, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 said he had no form or splendor that we should consider him. There was nothing about him physically, the prophet says. No beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he says he was despised and rejected by men. So the whole point, obviously, is that Jesus' physical characteristics were not something that God ever intended for us to focus on or dwell on. And yet the whole book of Revelation, in fact, the whole Bible from, from Genesis to Revelation is about him, right? It's about him. 
And the book of Revelation is about him. And there's three places in the book of Revelation that we, where we have a veil pulled back and we have a visual description of this vision of Jesus. Okay? Three places. And they're kind of highlights of the book. One of them is at the end of the book. In chapter 19, he is the king of kings returning. In chapter 5, he is the lamb who was slain. And all eyes in songs in heaven are on him and for him. And then here in chapter 1, there's this vision that we have that Jeremy and Kelly read you of, of Christ literally in the midst of his church. Depicted by those seven lampstands. And he's, he's there in the middle of his church. In, in, and this is vision of Jesus that John saw as he's there in that church. And remember, our, our tendency in Revelation is to think about things yet to come. Right? It's an apocalyptic book. The veil is pulled away to reveal something that's been hidden. And our tendency when we think about the book of Revelation is things to come. Right? And it is. It is about things that are to come. But it is also about things that are. And John gets this picture of Jesus standing in his church. And he gets that vision of Jesus for the sake of those who would receive that letter. For the sake of the churches. This church. And Jesus is here today. And he's here to confront us, in some ways challenge us. He's here to comfort us and encourage us. And I think we see all of that in this passage of Scripture. He's, he's here to steady us and just kind of reassure us. Okay, so that's this picture that we have. And every word of God's Word, we saw this when we went through Psalm 119, right? Every word of God's Word is given for our Good use. It's given for our instruction. It's, it's given for our reproof, for our correction, for training in righteousness. And that's true of Revelation as well. Okay? So if anything, I've been praying as I've been preparing this series is that we would see the book for us today. See this letter for us today. Not just about what's going to happen whenever. So let's, let's take a look at this, this vision that we have. We read, Kelly read you the part of the passage that we saw last week, this, this greeting that comes from John and the Trinity and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We saw that. And then we pick up the reading here in verse 9. And there's this, there's two pick, there's, I've divided this thing kind of into four, okay? There's, there's John, two, two words about, two visions of John, and then Jesus takes the center stage. And we'll look at him in a couple of ways, okay? So the first thing is John, who says he is our faithful brother and our companion. Look at what it says in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner. And then he describes that partnership. He, desri- he describes what's going on within this family. And there's three words with one article, okay? In the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he says, I, John, your brother, with you in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
What we see here is John has been faithful. He's been faithful to preach. He's been faithful to proclaim. And look what it got him. Look what it got him. He is, he is on this island. Now, what we know about John, a lot of it comes from church tradition. Some, uh, some archaeological discoveries have helped with it. But it's, it's mostly understood that John was the last of the living apostles, the last of the living disciples. And, and, and most historians agree, most scholars would tell you that John is, is the only one of those disciples probably who died from a natural death. And he was well in his 90s, many say. Now, he was also, many say, the youngest of the disciples when he was called by Jesus. So here's a man who has walked with Christ and then served him longer than anybody else. Now, there's discussion about what went on in John's life that brought him to this place, that put him on the island of Patmos. We will talk about it a little bit. We're not going to get a little, but the whole one of the controversies around Revelation is actually when it was written, because that says a lot about what it entails and what it applies to. But most agree that the Roman emperor Domitian was just unleashing terrible persecution on the church. Domitian required that he be addressed as Dominus et Deus, which is Lord and God. So the emperor desired and decreed that he would be worshipped. And many would not do this. You know, faithful Jews would not do this. And Christians would not do this. And so sometimes on punishment of death, but many times they were just kicked out, exiled. And so Patmos is this little island south, if you will, of Turkey, kind of southwest of Turkey, I've never been there. It's 10 miles by 6 miles, okay? So it's not big. It's basically a big rock out there in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And so it was a penal colony. Those who were being punished by the Romans were being sent there to work in the rocks, you know? It was hard labor. And here's this old man, at least in his 80s, and here he is exiled on this island. Now, tradition says that after Domitian died, John came back. They tried to kill him, one tradition says, by dropping him in boiling oil and it didn't touch him. And so, hence, he died from natural causes later on. You know, nothing is said about that. That's one of the traditions. The point was, he's the oldest living disciple. He's at least in his 80s or 90s here. Which means he, he has walked with and known Jesus better than anybody. He's seen Jesus with his physical eyes. He's heard Jesus talk. He's looked into his eyes. He's looked, into, he's looked at his mouth. He knows Jesus better than anybody. Because he says in this passage, one like a son of man. So what he sees in this vision is some ways familiar to him and in some ways almost kills him. It's an amazing vision. So here he is on the island of Patmos. And he's there because he has been faithful, he says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's been faithful to proclaim both. And here he is on the island, a prisoner. And so here he is, and he has this vision, this unveiling before him. And notice what he describes as characteristics of the kingdom, all right? 
And again, I say this a lot, but dang, it just needs to be repeated. This is not your best life now. Because what characterizes John and his fellowship with the church is tribulation and perseverance. Okay? There's a bond of family. I am your brother. And there's this idea of being a fellow partaker. Ongoing involvement is the idea there. And this is a major theme throughout the book of Revelation is the kingdom of God. Now look at what the formula for entering this kingdom is. And this is going to be throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. Somebody ought to amen. And yet in the book of Revelation, he is a lamb with his throat slit. A little, a little sheep. Nothing we see of how Jesus rises to the throne makes any sense in a worldly understanding of power and dominion. He's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And his trip, his journey to this throne of thrones comes through suffering, comes through laying down his life and that life being raised up again by the power of God. That's the pattern for the kingdom, church. Oh, listen, we're drunk on the understanding of what power is in a worldly sense. And we've drunk too much from that cup. Jesus told his disciples, oh, if you want to follow me, you will drink the cup that I drink. They didn't have any idea what it involved, and I don't think we do either. But here the king is on the throne and he's gotten there through the path of suffering. And our partnership, our fellowship in the kingdom, as we will see in these next two chapters, is for those who conquer. And those who conquer are those who endure. They endure the tribulation. They endure the suffering. They go through the same things that Jesus went through and as such are identified as his. Partners in the tribulation and in perseverance. Yeah, perseverance, that word is, we sometimes translate it as patience. But it, it, bearing up under a huge load is what the word literally means. And that's the characteristic of this kingdom. So we just need to understand that those who are going to enter the kingdom and those who are going to serve in the kingdom are going to do it the same way our king did. All right? It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. It's but it is the path of ultimate victory. It's the path of suffering. It's the way of the cross. And notice what he says. In Christ. You see, that's in Christ. We saw that in the book of Ephesians. We are in Christ from before the foundation of the world. We were in Christ with all of our inheritance that God has for us. Paul says that in Christ, in him. In God's love in Christ, that there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. You remember that? There's, we're not going to be torn away from his love by life or death or angels or rulers or present or things to come, not principalities or powers. Nothing is going to separate us from the love that is in Christ. Right? Well, in Christ is this tribulation and this suffering and this perseverance. That's what it is to be in the kingdom. And this vision for John and this word from John is given to the church then and the church now. So we will endure. All right. So we will overcome and be conquerors. What comes next in verse 10 he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I love that. The Lord's day is the day of Jesus' resurrection. This is not the, the traditional Israeli or Jewish Sabbath. This is when Christians gather to worship. 
And this is, this is a historical reminder for us of, of when we gather to worship on the Lord's day. So I don't think there was a church on this penal colony. I think John was just supernaturally indwelt by the Spirit, given this vision from the Spirit on the day when he would re- just kind of back away and worship. I don't know the setting. It just says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice, he says, like a trumpet. And it was audible because it said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he lists these seven churches that we will see individually over the next two chapters. So here's, here's what I want us to see in this, because remember what we said last week. You cannot understand Revelation if you don't understand and go back to constantly and consistently the Old Testament. And so here John is taking the role of a prophet Because the words we hear from John here are words that we see in prophets before him. It's a pattern of the Old Testament prophets. So like Ezekiel, for instance, he says, I was in the spirit. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 2, and he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. When God calls us, he empowers us, right? And so here John is being called up to this task and he's in the spirit. This is a supernatural vision. Supernatural vision. Like Ezekiel, he's in the spirit. And what did he hear? Well, listen, he heard the same thing in a different way that Moses heard on the mountaintop. Back there in the book of Exodus. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled in Exodus 19. Like Moses, he heard the voice thundering. Trumpeting this supernatural call of God. Think about it. How many times had John heard Jesus talk? Huh? And here he is again. But he's not heard it this way. He's not heard it this way. He had heard that voice, I don't know, 70, 80 years ago. And that voice has echoed through his mind constantly. And now he hears it in a different way. You know, I don't have this in my notes, and I hadn't even thought about it until just now, but we could all use that. We could use, we'll see it shortly, a a wake-up call of God's voice that just thunders. And I think at times he seeks to do that. He does that through his creation. He does that through through the calamities that come through creation sometimes. That's the voice of God. Right? Elijah told us that it's a still, small voice, a whisper. I need him to scream sometimes. I need him to scream. John had heard this voice. And then notice, thirdly, like Moses and like Isaiah and like Jeremiah, he is given a command to write down what it is that he's hearing and seeing. He's commanded to write this and send it to these churches. And there's seven of these churches And we have the book of Revelation because John was obedient to that. All right? It's just a a small glimpse of what it meant earlier when we saw in 2 Peter that the Spirit of God moved these men along like the wind in the sails of a ship to write down what he had inspired them to write. And that's what we have here in John. Except in this case, it's something that he's seeing as well as something that he's experiencing. That's John's call as a prophet. Now let's turn to Jesus. Look at verse 11. And then I turned to see the voice. I love that. So evidently the image that we have here is John 
is, is looking in one direction and hears this trumpet-like voice that just echoes through the rocks or the cave that he's in, and he turns to see what he's hearing. And what did he see? And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in verse 13, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. You, depending on how you count, there's ten, ten descriptions here of Jesus. And it is a compelling vision. Compelling in the sense of when we see this, and, and grasp what it is John saw. It motivates us. It, it spurs us. It compels us. It, 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 it's everything to us. First thing we see is this picture of these golden lampstands. So this is a picture, if you will. I think this is symbolic. Both of the church and of the one who takes care of his church. And I mentioned last week, but we do it again. We go back to Zechariah chapter 4. And the setting in Zechariah is where the temple needed to be rebuilt. And Zerubbabel had been called by God to do that, to build that temple. And Zechariah gets this vision of what that building is going to look like. Not physically what the building's going to look like, but how that building is going to take place. How this, how this is going to be accomplished. And in Zechariah chapter 4, and I'll just read this to you. He had this vision. The angel who talked to me came to me again and woke me like a man who's asleep. Awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see. And behold, a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it. And seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And he sees olive trees. And in verse 4, and I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel talked, to, talked with me, answered and said, do you not know what these are? I said, no. Verse 8, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this vision of these lamp stands as, as this vision comes to Zechariah of, of how this temple is going to be rebuilt. Of what's going to happen. And how it's going to happen. And the vision in Zechariah and the word of the Lord there through the prophet seems to be, it will be by my spirit, it will be by my power that this will be built. Not by your might, not by your power or anybody else's. God is rebuilding his temple in the book of Zechariah. And telling us how it's going to be done. And this lampstand is a, is, a, is a symbol there of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. I believe the person of the Holy Spirit who would be the one to, to do this. But then we go back a little further. What else do you, will you know about lampstands? Well, we know that in that tabernacle in the Old Testament and then in the temple that was built following that is this inner sanctum, this holy of holies, separated by this curtain. And in there is this furniture, all of it symbolic, very meaningful. And one of those is a lampstand. And the role of the priest was to see that that lampstand is constantly burning. The role of the priest was to take care of that lamp and be sure that that light is always lit. 
And I believe we have that picture here of, of what it is Jesus is supposed to do. The people have been commanded in Leviticus 24. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. And then he says that Aaron, the priest, is to arrange for that. And he's to take care of that. And he's to do it regularly. So this picture of this priest maintaining a source of light there in the presence where God is. So here's what the big picture, I believe, in Revelation is going to show us. The tabernacle, God dwelling with his people, and then the temple, the representation of that, all built and maintained through the power of the Holy Spirit with priests that God calls out, maintaining and keeping that lit light shining. And then in the New Testament, we see that God is building up a, a, a different kind of church. He told Peter, upon this rock... Upon the profession of faith in me, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So God is building now, not a physical temple, but a spiritual temple in his people, in his church. But yet the conclusion of that in the book of Revelation is that there's not going to be a temple rebuilt. All right, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag in some of the things that I believe about the book of Revelation. There's not going to be a reinstatement of any sacrificial system. That's done, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Jesus has finished that. And there won't be the need of a temple because God himself will be with his people and will be their God. And the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, like a bride adorned for her husband, is going to be lit by the presence of Jesus. The light is going to be him. And so it's just a reminder of where this is all going in this picture and how it's all going to be done. And it's going to be done by God through the power of his Holy Spirit and his faithful people. And this should be a reminder to us, not only of Jesus in the midst of his temple, in the midst of his church, tending his lamp, which is those churches. But it's a reminder also of what Jesus told us, is it not, in the Sermon on the Mount, about who we are as his people? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Right? Remember that? No one lights a, a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but he puts it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. And so Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is still tending his lamp, this church, us, so that our light would shine for Jesus and him alone, nothing else. The spotlight will be on nothing and no one else. And he's tending that light for us. These lampstands tended by the high priest, his high priestly role. He is one like the Son of Man, it says, and he has all authority and dominion. Last week we saw it. We're going to see it again, and we will probably see it several times. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7, to this vision that Daniel had. And here we see something extraordinary, something interesting. So walking in the midst of these lampstands, John says, is one like the Son of Man. And that's the title that Jesus took for himself. And that's the title that Daniel receives as he looks in and sees his own heavenly vision. And in Daniel's vision, he sees the Ancient of Days, or God Almighty, and he also sees the Son of Man. He sees Jesus. And notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. And as I looked... Thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days, capital A, capital D, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow his hair was, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was 
fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court set in judgment and the books were opened. And then I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Be patient. We'll get to that. Okay. But look at verse 13. And I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's, that's the Son of Man. That is God. Don't misunderstand. Sometimes we say, and I've probably said it, and we need to be careful, I guess, when we do. Well, the Son of Man is Jesus' term for his humanity, and Son of God is his term for his divinity. Make no mistake, this Son of Man is God. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus, is, Jesus used that phrase, the Pharisees picked up stones ready to kill him. They knew exactly what he was saying. But notice the characteristics of Almighty God. Do you see that? The characteristics of Almighty God, white hair, white as snow, pure like wool. These characteristics are given to the Son. Jesus has given these God characteristics here. And so make no mistake of what it is that John is seeing. He's dressed as a priest. He's in his holiness and his purity and his majesty. That's what the robe talks about, that sash across his chest, this priestly garb, this, this uniform of a priest that he wears. And notice that he has this wisdom and this, this picture of ageless knowledge with his white hair. There's this picture of ageless knowledge. And yet at the same time, there's this energy and this drive. Look at what he says there. His eyes are flames of fire. So here's this picture of the perfect eternal judge whose eyes are like laser beams burning through whatever needs to be burned through to see what's on the inside. That's who's looking at us this morning. That's who's peering into my heart and your heart. Eyes like fire. And his feet are shining like polished bronze. I mean, it's just reflection of this beautiful metal. And it's a picture of this solid foundation, this purity that stands at the very foundation of all of this. In his voice, John says, his voice is like Niagara Falls. I've never been there, but I've been to some smaller falls and you can't talk over them. And that's what John is hearing. This voice that is so loud, it's like thundering water. It reminds me of Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. That's this voice that John hears. That's this voice that's recorded for us. How many times over these 70, 80, 90 years has John heard this voice? He heard him say, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He heard them say, he heard Jesus say, take this bread. It's broken for you. It's my body. 
This blood is the sign of the new covenant. John heard all of that. One depiction of that Last Supper has John with his head reclining up against the breast of Jesus. He's felt his heartbeat. He's heard his voice. He's seen his eyes. He's watched his mouth move and taken great comfort in that. Here it almost takes his life, like Isaiah in chapter 6. Woe is me. I am undone. That's the vision of Jesus, that latter vision that we so often need so badly. And we'll get it in Revelation. We'll get it. His voice like the falls. And notice, from his mouth came this sharp two-edged sword. John's never seen his mouth like this before. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 that the word of God is living and powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. A two-edged sword, it slashes one way and it slashes the other way. And in the book of Revelation, we're going to see this sword. It's going to heal some and it's going to slaughter many. In some, it's like a surgeon's knife that cuts the tumor of sin out of the heart of his church. In others, it's going to, it's going to do away with them. That's what this sword represents. A double-edged, sharp sword that for some it heals and for some it hurts. For some, it's going to remove the evil and for some, it's going to judge and kill because of that evil. That's the picture we're going to see here. And when we get to the end of the book, we're going to see it again in Revelation chapter 19. This rider on a horse coming down out of heaven. And with that sword coming out of his mouth, he's going to strike down the nations and rule with a rod of iron. I understand our Jesus is gentle and lowly, right? Not here. There's nothing gentle or lowly about him. John tells us that in his hands are seven stars. There's a lot of discussion and debate about what those seven stars are. What does it mean? I know later on in the text, at the end of the passage, it says that it's the angels of the churches. But I'm not real sure what that is. Some say it refers to to preachers or to elders, to those that are carrying out the word, you know, speaking the word. And And it may be that. It doesn't tell us what it is. Whatever it is, there's an intimate connection there. He holds them in his hands. Here is this son of man with his hands in the stars. Holding them. Again, the writer of Hebrews says that this world is held together by his powerful word. The Big Dipper is where the Big Dipper ought to be because he holds it in place. And here these stars are in his hand. And so there's this idea of ownership, authority, of this intimate connection here. And I don't know necessarily who these angels are. I don't know necessarily what it represents. But wherever, whatever they are, they're in a good place. Because Jesus told us earlier in John 10 that no one snatches anyone out of his hand. No one. John says his face is shining like the sun, shining at full strength. I just thought about this all week. How many times had John looked into that face? Now, the Gospels tell us that there is one time on this place called the Mount of Transfiguration where John and Peter, there on that mountaintop, there for just a minute, just a second maybe, The human veil was removed and they saw the glory of the transfigured Christ. And again, just like it does for John here, it almost killed them. It says, when I 
In fact, John says here, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And there on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Same thing. Same thing. So when I saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. And look at this last point. Here Jesus comes to him. He is the living one. And he comforts and he commissions. Ultimately, that's what these visions in the Old Testament and here in the New are about. When we see Jesus for who he is, our only response should be, You are Lord, what do you want me to do? What would you have me do? So Jesus comes and and John fell at his feet as though dead. And look at what it says there in verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. For As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And again, we'll see this seven over and over and over and over and over in the book of Revelation. It's John's favorite number. It's a picture of completion. It's a picture of fullness. These seven churches that we will see individually are representative of all the churches in that area and representative of us. And Jesus comes to John. He says, when I fall him, I fell as though dead. That's the reaction that... It's the reaction we see all the time when angels show up and give some kind of revelation. But Jesus says, don't be afraid, John. How could he say that and why would he say that? Well, look at what he says. First off, don't be afraid, John. I am the first and the last. What does he mean? I believe one of the things that he means is that, John, don't be afraid. I am Lord over every second of every hour of every day that has been and every second and every hour of every hour of every day that will be for all of eternity. I'm the first and the last. I'm absolute Lord over everything. Don't be afraid. Secondly, he says, I'm the living one. He says he died and he is alive forevermore and he has the keys of death and Hades. And so there's this picture again of we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid in life and we don't have to be afraid in death. Danny Aiken said, death claims the body. Hades claims the soul. But not unless Jesus says so. And that's what we see here. Hades here is the place of the dead. Okay. And Jesus holds the key to that place. And we understand he has gone there. He's, he's, he's visited death. He's overcome it. And we don't need to be afraid of it because he has. So don't be afraid, he tells John. I'm Lord over everything. Don't be afraid. I have the keys of life and death. I hold those keys. And in verse 19, John gets his commission. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And I I think, and and several of the commentaries that I have been using in this series and will use, tell us that verse 19 is a pretty clear, just a a one-sentence summary of the whole book. All right? John, write what you have seen. Write this vision, John. We're, we're, We're reading his obedience to that. Write what you have seen. Then he says, write the things that are. 
And we will see the things that are, the current situation, the current context of all that's going on in Revelation 2 and 3 as he writes these letters to the seven churches. And he begins to address what's going on in those churches. That's the, that's the time-constrained application of it then, but there's timeless application for it for us. The things that are are what we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3. And then what will take place is what, chap- is what happens in chapters 4 through 22, the rest of the book. Okay, so John, write what you see, this vision. Write what is, chapter 2 and 3, and write what will be. In 4 through 22. So it's summarized there in this passage of Scripture. And then Jesus gives him this little summary, if you will, of what it is that he's seen. The lampstands are the churches. And the stars are those angels. Jesus, I wish you'd have said just a little more about that. So, But that's okay. We'll just trust you with that. So let me give you four words. You can jot these down on your sermon notes. These four words, I think, are four applications of this passage. The words are surrender, worship, serve, and rest. Those are the, that's how I, I just think we can apply this, this vision of Jesus in that way. Surrender, worship, serve, and rest. First, surrender. (laughs) Again, you know, some people I've heard before, you know, I went to this one church and I heard this, you know, he's, he's kind of a more of a hellfire preacher than you are, Gerald. And that's fine if, that, if that's their style, but let me give just a little bit of subdued hellfire. All right? This sword is either going to heal you or cut you and send you to hell. And unless you surrender to this king, Jesus This king who left the glory of his throne in heaven in all of eternity, clothed himself in human flesh, and came to die on a cross to pay the penalty for the sin that you and I deserved. He laid down his life and took it up again for you. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And some of those will bow because their hearts have been touched by the sword of the word of God and been healed. And some of them will be destroyed eternally because they did not. Please surrender to Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust him. Surrender. Worship. This glorious one. He's he's as glorious today as he was when John saw this vision. He's glorious among us right now. If, if, just through the, the preaching of his word, through the reading of his word, through the singing of his praises, he is, this glorious one holds the keys of life and death in his hands. He is, he's glorious in every way. And he deserves our worship. And part of what we learn through the book of Revelation is what that worship ought to look like. That's part of, I think, one of the applications of, of, of Revelation. It teaches us what New Testament worship should look like. It is centered on the living word. It is focused on Jesus. Worship him. Serve, thirdly. This, this living one who comes to John and says, fear not, gives him a purpose. And that purpose is, is, is the, the commission to John was to write. The commission to us is to shine. We are that lampstand. We are that light. We are called to shine for Christ. He tends us. He cares for us. He fills us. 
He is the light of the world in us for the sake of the dark world around us. And he tells us to shine for him. He, he comes and calls us to that. We're going to see that in every one of these letters to the churches. We are to serve him. He is to be the focus of all that we do. We are to, it's about Jesus. And it's about the Jesus of the Bible. It's about the Jesus that is revealed here. It's not about the Jesus that the culture would shape or that is shaped by current events. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And we will see that as we look at these letters. Fourthly, rest. Rest in the one who is alive forevermore and sovereign over all. That's what he says. I, I'm, I'm the first and the last. Fear not. I'm alive. I died and I'm, a, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys, John. Chill out. What are you afraid of? It does not matter eternally who's in the White House. It doesn't matter who sits in the governor's seat. It doesn't matter what happens with your physical body in one sense. Chill out, church. Rest in Him. He's sovereign over all. So don't be afraid of time. He's Lord over that. Don't be afraid of life. Live it. Live it powerfully. Live it radically. Live it for Jesus. He's God over that. And when He is finished with you, He has the keys to life and death. And you can rest in that too. Because He says, everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. That's our Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the eyes of faith to see you the way John has recorded for us what he saw. We can read it. Our minds can process the words. Maybe even in our imagination, we can see someone shining, bright feet, white hair. A knife coming out of his mouth, a sword. But Lord, take us past what take us past what our minds might envision, God, and burn this image in our souls. Burn it in our hearts, Jesus, so we can see you in all of your glory. Because no one in the Bible ever saw you for 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 who you are in your glory and stayed the same. And Jesus, I pray that we'll be changed. Change us, Lord. Save him or her that needs to be saved today. Call us to worship before your throne, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Lord, help us to let our light shine for you and serve you recklessly, powerfully. And to do so, Lord, in the confidence that comes that you are King of kings, Lord of lords. And we can rest in that. And I pray that, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.